You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, Freedom Pact, and welcome back to episode 80. I am your host, Joseph Newton, and I am delighted to bring you today's episode with a man that I greatly admire, Shane Parrish. Shane is the host of the Knowledge Project podcast, which is my personal go-to listen, and for a slight tangent, I think that Shane is one of the best interviewers around, and he is someone that I have personally taken a lot of notes from as an interviewer. Shane has interviewed the likes of Jim Collins, Esther Perel, Daniel Kahneman. There's also been some mutual guests like Robert Greene and Annie Duke. The Knowledge Project is just one of the notches under Shane's hugely impressive umbrella. Shane is also the founder of Farnham Street, an online learning community, while Shane founded whilst working for a leading intelligence agency in Canada. Farnham Street can be found at fs.blog, and I promise you, you will not regret checking that out. Farnham Street is dedicated to mastering the best of what other people have already figured out, That site now gets over 1 million page views per month. Shane, as you may have guessed, is an absolute learning machine. So much so that I have made it one of my personal life goals to go and see this guy's bookshelf with my own eyes. And to emphasise this point, Shane told me that in 2013... He read 153 books in one year. Shane is my North Star when it comes to education. And speaking to him has made me want to improve. And I'm sure that you guys are going to take so, so much out of this conversation. When Shane isn't interviewing leading scholars and notable people, you may find him managing Cirrus Partners, which is an investment company operating out of North America. Farnham Street, Shane's project, also released a book called The Great Mental Models, which covers general thinking concepts. Shane and I discuss volume one in today's episode, which is all around general thinking concepts. Now, you may be thinking, why is this important? Why are mental models important? Well, as the saying goes, to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Having a clear and concise understanding of these mental models will greatly improve your decision making. And when you consider that your life, who you are right now, where you are, you know, the money you make, your health, all these other things, this is the conclusion of the vast amounts of decisions which we make every day. Becoming a better decision maker will ultimately make for a much better life. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the remarkable Shane Parrish. Shane, so great to connect. Man, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's such a pleasure. So uh, usually towards the end of the Freedom Pact interview, Shane, I always ask the guests for some book recommendations. Uh, I've pretty much listened to every single interview I could find Shane Parrish in on, online. And what I found particularly interesting about you, Shane, is that you give a great quote in one interview and you said, there's no real point in me just offering your audience, you know, 10 books that I can offer. But what I can offer you are the underlying philosophies as to what I follow to select a book. So yeah. I actually think that, that this may, in fact, alter the questions which we ask at the end of the show. So I'd love to know, what is your process for selecting a book? What are the philosophies? 
Well, I mean, one of them is what's going on in my life right now. Uh, so what's contextual? Do I need to learn something? Am I going through something personally that I want to learn about? Are there areas that I'm just curious about that I don't know a lot about? Uh, and then that gives me sort of like a direction. And then it's about finding a book within that direction. And a lot of that is just sort of like happenstance. Some of it's Amazon and searching reviews. I mean, we try to or I try at least to consume, a, a start a lot of books, but I don't finish a lot of books. So I want to sort of read widely and um, promiscuously, if you will, and then sort of like deep dive on a few of them. But you get a feel for a book. Uh, and sometimes it's just like, I don't want this book right now, but I want to come back to it. Now I know about it. Um, and sometimes you, you need the context to actually have the book have meaning for you. So an example for me is like, Marcus Aurelius and Meditations, right? I hated that book when I read it in university. And then I went back to it when I got divorced and it had this different context all of a sudden, right? Because of what was going on in my life. And now I was like, oh, this is, I didn't think it was life changing in that sense, but it resonated with me on a whole nother level that it never did in university. And so life experiences constantly change which books are going to impact you. That's why it's so hard to give somebody a book. And we also think societally, like when you give somebody a book, it's a signal. And we're starting to see that now with titles, right? You are a badass. That's the title of a best-selling book. It almost doesn't matter what's in that book because people just want to give it to somebody as a signal that they think you're a badass. So I tend to stay away from sort of like the popular stuff that is like whatever. We did a study a couple years ago about what's on the New York Times best-selling list. And we went back all the way to 2000 and we recreated every list. So 52 weeks a year since 2000 came up with every title and then just sort of like what's still in print that was best selling 20 years ago. And most of it's not. And so one of the heuristics I use is like what's still in print today that's over 20 years old. What are those books? Right. And then is there a truth in those books that becomes a universal truth? And I think for most of them, there are, there's a lot of philosophy books, but there's a lot of sort of like the seven habits of highly effective people would be an example of a book that has stood the test of time. You read that book and it's, you know, it was also written, I'm sure in the sixties and it'll be written again. And because it's talking about something timeless and I love the idea of timeless things because they don't expire and I can build on my knowledge instead of just sort of acquiring this knowledge that has a half-life of a few weeks. And so th there's no sort of like concrete system I have for like how I pick what I read. But those are the, some of the variables that I think about when I'm choosing something to read. Yeah, I find that really interesting. And as you were saying that, for some reason, the book which was coming to my mind was uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, exactly. that book was written in like, was it like the 30s or something? You know, so, yeah. You know, so the, the other thing as well, Shane, uh, that I really found interesting when I was uh, listening to you, I will admit that that my whole reading philosophy had all been about quantity to such an extent that I feel as if it my my identity, my ego, had almost become tied up in Goodreads challenges and <laughs> how big can I yeah. build my 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 bookshelf. But I, I mean, listen. I I went down this. Sorry, just for a second, I went down this path, and I think it was 2013 or 2014. I read 153 books that year, cover to cover, and then I just sort of like woke up and I was like, "What the like? What am I doing? Right? Like, and now I'm just reading to read. It's not like I'm reading to actually like check the box instead of reading to learn. And I think there's a huge difference between the two things, right? Like when you're doing that, it, it's an ego thing. It's a signal thing. It's like um, but it's not a learning thing. And ultimately, like the outcome I want is sort of like learning, connection, meaning, um, timeless sort of content that I can build upon or get a different angle into. I read I finished the great mental models yesterday. I picked oh, up nice. the, I picked up the the uh, the Kindle version of it. We will talk about this throughout the interview. But was this the first book in which you've published? This is the first the book we've one. published. It's been a it's been a process, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what what I found really interesting is is as I was reading the book, the the content is great. I love the content, but what I was I was so taken aback by was that you delved into you went through all these 
parables you included all these historical uh the a uh, uh, litany of historical uh context so much so to the point i was thinking to myself i was like i was like wow i was like this is giving me real uh no, the only way I think I could put it is real Robert Green type vibes. <laughs> mm. So I'd love to know who were some of your influences in terms of from a, a an author standpoint. Who were some of the people that impacted your writing style, Shane? Uh I mean that's that's a good question. I think a lot of people have sort of. Uh, there's a lot of people I admire, but I don't necessarily want to be like them, right? And I think, you know, Ryan Holiday is a really good writer for his style, and James Clear and Robert Greene and uh, Adam Grant and all of these people. Um, I think part of my process is I don't I don't want to mimic anybody else, so I'm careful when I'm reading not to try to read into too much of style and... Um, now, there's people that do things better than you that you can learn from, and that's a different sort of thing. But, like, I don't think I want to copy anybody else's style. Every time I've tried to do that, it always ends up being really difficult, really hard, and not natural. And even though I might like that style, it might not be me. And I think um, with some of the people I had mentioned, it's the same thing, right? Like, I like also, like, short and pithy and... Um, making people think and that's a different style than writing a book right so it's like what medium are you on and what style suits the medium and what can you do to tailor and mediums are different too right because you, you think of social media as a medium but the way you tailor a message to somebody on linkedin or facebook or instagram or twitter is all going to be different because they all have different primary consumers um, and so like you have to think about like what is the method of communication because what are you going for? You're going to resonate with somebody. You want to create meaning. You want to, you want to help them see something they haven't seen before or understand something in a way that they haven't understood it before. And part of the way you do that is approaching them in a way that is accessible, right? Meeting them where they are and how you do that is tailored to a medium. If you sit down and pick up a book, it's one thing. And if you, um, and it, it, if you're sort of consuming things on online, it's different. And one of the things we've learned through publishing this book is, as as interesting as this sounds, is like we we wanted to make it. We have five books coming out. We're trying to cover basically the big ideas of the world that you would have learned in the 101 class of university. We call them the Great Middle Models. It's a multidisciplinary education, and we didn't want to make them longer than necessary. Right, because I hate books that are 300 pages that should have been 150 pages or 50 pages, and so we we made the first book and we we included sort of like the general thinking concepts in it. And one of the feedback that we're getting is the book is short, and it's like oh that's really interesting, right? Because for us it felt the right length, and I think that that's another thing too, right? Is like you can't please everybody all of the time, right? And the style of that book is going to be different from the style of that series, I should say, is going to be different from the style of some of the other stuff that we produce. And it's sort of like matching the style to something true and genuine to Street and to me personally, but also being adaptable to what we're trying to accomplish with the books, right? Like this is a series of reference books. The style for that will be different than if we try to, or if I attempt to write up a, a more popular book or sort of like a more widely available book instead of like, and this cult underground sort of knowledge-based reference book. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I was going through the book, what I what I really found was just how enjoyable it was to read. I think that those historical uh, references, I really was taken back by, I would just say, what is... I would say, in general, quite a complex topic. I mean, you know, you're trying to distill, you know, vast amounts of of hugely complex information, and and I was and I was reading on Kindle, and I got to, and I was and on the Kindle, it gives like a percentage of how far through you are, and I was on like nine percent, and I looked again, and I was like. I'm on forty three percent. I was like, "This is a real fun read." <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I'm so happy to hear that. I mean, it, it's gratifying that um, 
you can make a reference book interesting, right? And, you know, we tried our best to, to also make it a bit boring, if you will, right? Which is, uh, you know, the title isn't sexy. There's no sort of like sex appeal to the book. It's, um, it's basically like you have to be interested in learning about these big ideas to, to pick up the book to begin with. And then how do we engage you in those big ideas? And the physical version, I mean, again, tailoring sort of like things to the medium, it's like, how do you pull people in? The audio is sort of the worst way to consume a reference book. So that's really difficult. But the Kindle book, we actually tried and we did different things than we've seen other Kindle books do. And the physical book is actually this beautiful sort of like integration between design and illustration. And it's trying to like pull you into the book itself. Yeah. Well, what I also love about you, I mean, you mentioned that book, you know, you are a badass. And you mentioned, you know, the pop psychology books that and i think it could be so easy especially you know with the, the major platform you've built you could have just done a a typical you know uh success principle type book or you could have done something like this which you know will will sell sell you know numerous copies but i feel as if what you've done is you've you've appealed to a real maybe the smallest viable audience type thing as as Seth Godin and then you get people like me and, and obviously your your crowd which they just absolutely love it it, it delights them <laughs> yeah I mean like we we I don't think we put that much thought into it we just really wanted to give back into the world I mean my background was sort of working for an intelligence agency and one of the things that I needed to get better at was uh, I had a computer science degree and while that helped me solve a lot of problems, I mean, it also ran its course. And then I found out I didn't really know much about psychology and how can you manage people if you don't know about psychology. And I didn't really know a lot about biology and I didn't really know a lot about all these other subjects. And you think, oh, that's not relevant to what you're doing. And, you know, um, it's not until it is, right? And I think like having a system to think through problems with these sort of truths and timeless truths or invariant ideas in mind gives you a better framework for solving problems and i mean i i can't go into details but the amount of times we use biology to solve computer science problems is would blow your mind and it's just a basic knowledge of biology that would help you sort of understand things and it's like oh that's really interesting and it allows you to solve problems in a very creative way and so our goal is to give that information to the world for free you can buy the books and support the project when all five books are done, we anticipate, well, we will at some point make all the content freely available online because part of what we're trying to do at Farnham Street is equalize opportunity, uh, not necessarily outcomes, but definitely giving people all over the world the same opportunity to access high-quality, multidisciplinary thinking. And that's what we try to do with the podcast, too, the Knowledge Project. We just try to get the best guests we can and like pick, pick their brains and deep dive onto certain subjects. Let's delve into this link between where you were back in 2001 and that transitionary phase that you had between going from that job at that in intelligence agency and then your journey, you know, choosing that MBA, which you went on and then stumbling along the likes. of Yeah, well, I mean, like the, 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 the gist of it is basically like I started work two weeks before September 11th. Um, the world changed forever September 11th, especially if you worked in an intelligence agency, you know, for the next seven to eight years, I worked six to seven days a week, you know, um, probably eight to 12 hours a day. There wasn't a lot of time for vacation. You ended up doing things you weren't qualified to do, right? Just timing circumstance, uh, not because you, you, you know, you get a lot of promotions, but it's not because you deserve them right? It's because you're the warm body in the seat and next man up, we need to sort of do this. And, and not only is your country counting on you, but the world in, in some ways is counting on you. Uh, and so you end up doing these things that you just really have no idea how to do. And so my computer science degree, you know, as time went on, became less and less relevant to the problems I was dealing with when I was managing a team or people or uh, managing managers. And I think I got to a point where, you know, when I was managing uh, operations that I just, I owed it to people. I felt like I wasn't thinking through problems very clearly, right? And I felt like I was missing something and I felt like the citizens of Canada who had placed their trust in me sort of deserved um, better in a way, right? Like I wasn't very confident in the decisions I was making. And luckily, you know, I think overall I made 
pretty good decisions, but I, I felt like I didn't, I didn't know enough to be making the decisions that I, I was making. And so I went on this, this journey, this internal journey to like, man, what am I missing? And, you know, it starts at work where you, you start asking people like, how would you decide this? Like, what's going on? Like, I remember going into my boss's office one day, I think it was like 2007. And I said like, Hey, this happened last night and I made this decision. And he's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's fine. That's the correct decision. And I'm like, how do you know it's the correct decision? Like, how do you, how would you think about that? And like his level of thinking was the same as, as mine. And I was like, if I feel my level of thinking is superficial, like I need to, I need more, right? Like, and I, and I said, I, I don't think I know what I'm doing. And he just laughed at me and said, nobody knows what they're doing. We're just doing our best. And I was like, I, I understand that. And I get that. And that message, you know, has an appeal to me because it sort of absolves me from responsibility. But I also have this side of me having parents in the military and, and, you know, lives at stake and all of this where I can do better and I can do more. And so I went on this process internally to learn about making decisions. How does the organization make them? How does the government make them? What are the variables that I need to be thinking about? And, um, you know, I, I didn't learn the stuff that I was wanting to learn for whatever reason. And then I went outside of work. I did my MBA, tried to, to get a broader view of the world. And I felt like the MBA wasn't really the education that I was hoping it to be. And I also, um, that would have been hard because I had a very nostalgic view of sort of my undergrad, which I loved, and then going to an MBA, which uh, I didn't necessarily love. Um, but I wasn't learning the things that I wanted to do, right? Like I wasn't learning how the world connects. I'm learning these very desperate subjects and not how one affects the other, right? Like how can you manage people if you don't understand the basics of psychology? How can you make decisions about operations if you don't understand probabilistic thinking, second order thinking? How can you um, get better if you're not constantly updating what you, based on the feedback, what's happening in your brain, right? You have a view of how this world works and you're expecting a certain outcome. And so you put those ideas into practice and then what happens is a lot of people don't update based on feedback. Now, on a one-off basis, you might not want to update because it might just be a probabilistic thing, right? You know, if something's going to happen 90% of the time, 10% of the time, it's not going to happen. But if you're making similar decisions over and over again, you're getting feedback. It's like, well, I'm expecting a 90% success rate, but I'm getting a 15% success rate. And the, the common thing that I noticed, and I think we all do it, and we all have this tendency, is to just absolve ourselves from from those decisions, right? We blame others, we blame the circumstance, we we sort of like, it's too much of a hit to our, our ego or our worldview to update it, but it's like, no, I need to update those things. Like, where are those things? Because those are the things that are gonna make me better at those types of decisions. Those are the things that um, the citizens deserve that I'm thinking about while I'm making these decisions. And so at the end of the day, I went on this journey, I found Charlie Munger through my MBA program, somebody actually quit, the MBA program while I was doing it. And uh, I ran into him in the cafeteria and I was like, you always thought about problems differently. Like what, where did this come from? And he said, Hey, there's this guy, Charlie Munger. And I mean, it just sort of like set me on this journey. And I, I think that night, that very night I looked, looked up Charlie Munger and my life changed. Right. I was like, here's a guy like this. I get, I don't understand half the stuff he's talking about. But I understand the way that he's connecting ideas from different subjects, and that's what I've been looking for, and that's what I want to gravitate to. And I really just, um, I wouldn't say I quit my MBA on that day, but I mean, I stopped doing homework and, you know, skipped a lot of classes and just sort of like deep dove on Charlie Munger and um, trying to learn a little bit about that. And then I went back to work and sort of rose up the ranks a bit more and, you know, decided it wasn't for me. One of the things that the book really makes evident is that we're always making decisions, right? Whether that's consciously or unconsciously. So if you could just give some context into mental models, could you just discuss why they're so important? Well, so we all sort of like have these ideas of how we think the world works. Um, and we have maps of, of what those models are in our head, right? Like if I say... If I hold up a pen right now and I, I'm, I tell you I'm going to drop it, you know what's going to happen because you've conceptualized gravity. You don't have to remember it at a 
a level where you know all the details, like it falls at 9.8 meters per second squared, you get the gist of it. Your brain has this sort of like ability to predict how the world's going to work. And there's other mental models we have are based on like our values, right? So I, um, I generally trust other people. So I see them as trustworthy. I feel like I'm a trustworthy person. Therefore, I project that other people will be trustworthy, right? So we also have value-based mental models that shape how we see other people in situations. And some of those models, I mean, we have millions of these models, if you want to think about it in our head, or thousands, hundreds of thousands probably. Um, and a lot of them help us think better. And we're not conscious of them. And a lot of them need to be updated. They're just incorrect. And that comes back to like, how do we update those models when the feedback comes in that they're not working? They're not serving us. We have the wrong map. One of the stories that, you know, where this happened to me was I was doing my um, exams. I think it was first year university. And I just wrote down the wrong exam schedule. So I showed up for my psychology test to find out, having studied for it and prepared for it, to find out it was physics. And so no amount of extra work or no amount of better attitude would have made that better. And most of the common sort of like wisdom or folklore in the world or self-help books are directed at sort of like, you just need to work more effectively or have a better attitude. And it's like, well, if you have the wrong understanding of how the world works, neither of those things are going to happen. And in this case, my map, if you will, was the, just the wrong exam schedule. It'd be like driving in a city, right? Like if I put you in london england and give you a map of new york and told you to get somewhere like no amount of effort is going to make that possible um and so we we have to sort of like conceptualize where these maps are and where are blind spots and for for me i think one of the big things that stood out to me was the blind spots are I don't know about all of these other subjects that have been around for hundreds and thousands of years and how can I make decisions in an interconnected world if I don't know about them, right? So if you wanna, if you wanna like tagline for it, it's mental models are how we understand the world, right? They shape how we think, but they also shape the connections we see between variables, right? They also shape what we ignore in a situation. So they simplify complexity, but they're also why we can why we think some things are more relevant than others. They're also how we reason to ourselves, right? We pick this model is probably going to carry the most weight in this particular decision. Um, and that's how we think at an unconscious level in a non-scientific sort of, um, you know, I'm not talking about how the brain interacts with itself, but that's sort of like how we do it. And if you ask people how they think, it's really hard to explain. But if you, if you say like, walk me through this situation, you'll learn what models that they're using based on the variables they mentioned. And those models that they're unconsciously using also have these interconnections. And so we want to play that out over time and that we're making a prediction. Every decision is a prediction about the future. Um, and sometimes you can have more certainty and sometimes you have less, but you need to come to a conclusion that allows you to make a decision that you have at least a little bit of confidence in or avoid negative outcomes. Right, which is like I really don't know what is going to lead us to um, the best possible decision, but I know here's a swath of things that are going to lead us to really bad outcomes. So if you just avoid the bad outcomes, you're going to get to better outcomes. But all of that comes through sort of thinking better, right? And the more models you have in your head, the fewer blind spots you have. And if you have no blind spots, which is like we're never going to reach there. It's the pursuit of sort of knowledge, but. If we ever got to a point where you didn't have blind spots, you would just always know what to do with a perfect degree of accuracy, right? But it, it doesn't happen that way. And the world is more like poker in a way where, you know, even you can get your hand and play it perfectly. You can play your hand perfectly and you can still come up with a bad outcome. And that happens sometimes. To the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, which is, yeah. which is which, you know, which is true. And then I suppose in terms of the, the mental models, you could essentially, well, I think you could break them down into the psychological ones and then the heuristics. Yeah, I mean, the, there's different, the, 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 they're all sort of heuristics in a way, right? Mm. I and mean, some of them are better than others. You have sort of like 
the models from the world, which is like math and like physics and unchanging invariant ideas. And then you have models that are based on your values, which is sort of like internalizing. Here's how I see other people, because in a lot of ways, this is how I see myself. And then we default to seeing things in other people that we sort of like see in ourselves. Mm. It's so interesting because I I recently was meeting with one of my good friends and and he's been in, he was, well, at the time he was in a relationship. He'd been in it for perhaps five years, I think about five years at that point. And uh, we had, we, we hadn't really spoken for a little while. So I just said to him, I said, you know, like, how's, how's it going in your relationship? How's things? And, and he said, he said, I said, I'm miserable every day. He said, you know, he said, I, I'm so unhappy. He said, uh, I said, I haven't been happy for, for, for ages. So I said, well, you know, why don't you just end it? And he goes, well, he said, I've just invested all this. He said, I've invested so much of my time, my money. He said, mm-hmm. and I said, I said, this is, this is, you know, the sunk cost bias. I said, you, 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 your brain is imagining all the things in which you've invested. And he said, he said, I know it's the exact bias. So yeah. I said to him, I said, the other thing to consider you, I said, is, is the opportunity cost. I said, because whilst you were in this relationship, which is making you unhappy, you're also missing the opportunity of potentially finding another partner which could make you happy. So that's that's an example, Blair, of, of just two of those mental models which impact our everyday life, right? Yeah, so I, I think those are two specific ones that I think are really interesting, right? Opportunity cost is a, a mental model from, and I think they're different mental models, right? So opportunity cost comes from sort of life, but if you want to think of it economics, and sort of sunk cost is a um, mental fallacy that we make, right? So in thinking, and the thing with cognitive biases are they're really good at explaining why we made a mistake. They're really bad at helping us avoid those mistakes, right? So we have the, the Godfather, if you will, of cognitive biases, Daniel Kahneman, who was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. Awesome episode. <laughs> right? Like, but, but one of the things that he said that's really interesting in that conversation, and he said it before, right, is I've studied these things my whole life. I've studied cognitive biases, and I feel like I'm no better at them than anybody else. And that's really interesting to me, not in a negative way, but in a way like, how is it that this person has studied this so maybe they're really good at explaining why we make mistakes, and they're really bad at helping us avoid them. And then you have these two guys from Omaha, Nebraska, like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and they seem to, they don't talk a ton about cognitive biases. They talk about human misjudgments, but they seem to have come up with a system that allows them to avoid these problems in advance. And one of the ways that they do that is they think about the world as an interconnected Entity and so opportunity cost becomes a really interesting way to think about um, things, right? If I'm do and people don't tend to think this way by default, but if you're saying yes to something, you might not be saying no to something else, but you're sort of like freeing, you know, you're preventing yourself from the optionality of saying no to something else. And if you think about life, your goal should be to constantly raise your opportunity cost. Problem is most people don't have an opportunity cost. One way to change that is just simply apply minimum wage to every hour of your day, right? So if I'm commuting, well, that means I'm not doing something else. I'm not spending time with my family. I'm not um, spending time with my friends. I'm not learning something. Uh, I'm not doing all these other things. And of course, you can argue that you can listen to podcasts in the car and make it productive. I don't agree that every hour of the day should be super productive, but the point remains that everything has a cost associated with it. And we worked this out with a buddy of mine because I live downtown and he lives in a suburb and I said it was cheaper to live downtown and he said, there's no way it's cheaper to live downtown. And I said, well, let's just factor in the fact that you're in a car for 90 minutes to two hours a day. So not only is your gas, your housing is less expensive, because you live farther out, but you're you're putting more wear and tear on the roads, you're polluting more, you're sort of like consumed, you're sitting in this car and you think none of those things really have this cost associated with them, except for gas, which is really subsidized. But you, 
what if we apply minimum wage to those two hours a day, every day, after tax? And we assume that. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know what? They're pretty equal. And it was like, that was eye-opening for him because I was like, well, you know, my commute's five minutes and yours is, you know, two hours. And how do you, you, you we don't tend to, and economics opportunity cost is one way to think about it, but there's opportunity cost and I could be spending that with, uh, my partner, I could be spending it with my kids, I could be spending that with my family, I could be spending it doing the things that are actually meaningful. And if you think about life backwards, like inversion, right, like living life with the end in mind, it's like, where do you want to go? And the things you're going to remember when you're 90 are the people. And they're the memories, they're not going to be like, I spent 20 years of my life in a car commuting. And um, now, not everybody can afford to, to do that, but those are sort of like some of the ways that you can use mental models to think through problems from a different lens. And that's all it is, right? It's giving you a lens into the situation. It's not telling you how to decide because there's much there's other ways to, to view that situation, right? Which is like, I might want to retire by the time I'm 40, so I'm willing to do this and live in the suburbs, and I'm making a trade-off. And it's just... How do we surface the trade-offs we're making? How do we surface the, the blind spot? How do we walk around a problem in a three-dimensional way and try to get the best view into it that we can get so when we're making decisions, we have an idea of the, like we have an actual understanding. So it becomes fairly reasonable or obvious what to do. Mm. The one question which we get all the time and i remember i asked annie duke who i think was also a guest on uh the knowledge yeah, annie, project annie's phenomenal i love her yeah and i remember i asked her and an, on the show and she she didn't have an answer for it so i, I wonder if uh, you have one and, she doesn't have an answer i probably <laughs> <laughs> and i said to her because she came on to to discuss her book uh, thinking like bets and uh the question which we get a lot is how can we avoid instant gratification right is how can we become conscious of exactly what we're doing so you know it's like the don't eat the marshmallow right <laughs> so i wonder how would you approach a topic like let's say instant gratification because i know this is highly relevant to our audience i think it's going to be different for different people and I don't, I'm going to preface this with, I don't have a good answer that works for everybody. I, I have an answer that works for me. Uh, and that what works for me is I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I don't have to do something immediate to sort of like pay for my food or um, all these things that I'm not driven by the next moment, right? And I think for a lot of people, we're not driven by the next moment. And then that allows you to, operate with a different time scale than other people. And I think keeping that time scale in mind is sort of the essence of life, right? You want to do things in the moment that are meaningful when you're 90. The flip side of that is like you you don't want to optimize for the moment. Like if you optimize for the shortest light like if you think you have 8 hours to live, you're going to go out and we think we'll spend money but we won't or sort of like do all these things but that that's not a way to live. So you have to, and I wouldn't say balance. It's just sort of like what kind of life do you want to live? And if you think of competition, like in a biological sense, or competition in terms of um, contrast in a chemical thermodynamic sense, what gives you an advantage over other people? And one of the things that we've found is a sustainable advantage, because I don't think it'll ever be fully taken away is timelines, right? It's just time. How people think about time differently. Some people want to optimize for the next quarter. Some people want to optimize for the next 10 years. Some people want to optimize for the rest of their life. And those things affect the projects you take. They affect your motivation to work. They affect a whole bunch of things. Um, and But Everybody's Sorry, can on. I just jump in there? Yeah, yeah. What, what is it that you specifically uh, look to optimize? What is your sort of time process for, what, you know, is it a quarter, is it a year, is it 10? Well, it's is it changed, right? So, like, when I was uh, in my 
early 20s, I was optimizing for I want to have financial independence as quickly as possible. Um, why do I want that? Because I don't want other people to have any power over me. I don't want to have to be beholden to a job. I don't want to have to be. And then when I got that, or reasonably got that, then it, it changed, right? And then it's sort of like, I've also matured in a lot of ways. I don't know if knowing what I know now, if I would go back and optimize for the same things. And now it's more like, I want to optimize for being a great father to my kids. I want to be a great partner to the person I, I end up with. I want to spend my life in a way that I don't have regrets when I'm 90 about the things that I think will be meaningful to me when I'm 90. And I, I think that that enables me to just I don't need to do the things that other people are doing and I don't feel a pull to it because I know the direction that I want to go in. So I don't have to copy and I can do projects where there's no payoff for five years and I don't, it's not a big deal because we put ourselves in a situation where financially we can handle that. And the flip side of that is like, it just enables us to do things that are completely different from what other people are going to do because how much competition are you going to have if you're willing to suffer for five years before you get a potential payoff? Almost zero. How much competition are you going to have if you're willing to suffer for 10 years before you get this payoff? Almost zero. How much competition are you going to have if you do the same thing for a year? Almost zero, right? And this timeline becomes this sort of like competitive. Now, are we right? We don't know. We won't know for five years for some of the projects that we have going on. Flip side of that is like we know nobody's going to copy us, right? Or we have this strong sense of nobody will, nobody's willing to endure as much um, trial and error and hardship and sort of like eating glass is what we call it for a long period of time just to get better at what we're doing and that affords us the opportunity to do things differently and i think like if you think it like if you do things like everybody else is doing them you're going to get the same results everybody else gets but doing things differently doesn't guarantee you better results it just means you're not going to get the same results everybody else gets so you have to do things differently um but you have to advantageously diverge from the herc right when do i want to copy other people when do i want to be different which sort of spectrum do I think that I'm going to land on? Uh, and then you have to be willing to look like an idiot. And most people, I mean, aren't willing to look like an idiot, right? And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things that prevents us from pursuing our dreams. It's like we know what we want to do, but it'll stand out. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we're taught our whole life not to stand out, right? The nail that sticks up gets hit. Um, a person who... Um, looks different the way that they're approaching something gets um, pointed out or made fun of or and if it fails you sort of like I mean increasingly almost get ridiculed for some of the oh, you should have known better you should no man like this is biology right we want this sort of like we call it a copying error in DNA when evolution does it and it naturally just tests things all the time but when people do it and they fail it's like this terrible thing and when they succeed, they were just lucky. And it's like, no, they were they were experimenting. They were doing something different, whether it was consciously or not, is less relevant to the fact that we need those sort of experiments happening in life. And you need to think about the experiments you have in your life. Where are you doing something that's different from other people? Where are you consciously choosing to take a different approach? And why are you doing that? What sort of feedback are you getting on that approach? And like, can you adapt it? Is it working? Uh, and I think those are really just fun questions to explore with people, and they're they're really fun to explore with yourself, right? Like, where do I where do I really care about the outcomes? Where do I really want to do something different? Where do I really have a different idea that I'm willing to put myself out there, and I'm willing to test this idea, and I'm willing to look like an idiot if it doesn't work, and I'm willing to go all in and see if I can do this. And those are the people that we should hold up as heroes, independent of outcomes. Right? We shouldn't hold up these CEOs of unicorn companies as like, oh, they're just geniuses. And some of them are, no doubt. But we should hold up the heroes as the people that are willing to experiment, the people that are willing to put themselves out there, the people that are willing to do something different. And that's not outcome dependent. One of the things that I found fascinating about you was that I heard you talk about the real importance that a meditation practice has had. So how could you just sum up your sort of meditation practice and the benefits that it has had on, on your life? 
Yeah. So, I mean, right now I meditate before I go to bed and, uh, after the gym, I usually hop in the sauna and try meditation in there. If there's nobody in there, it works out really well. If there's somebody in there, sometimes it, it doesn't work as well if they start talking or something, but it sort of like focuses me, right? It grounds me. It gives my brain a break from the stimulus. Like we're, we're, we have all these inputs into our lives and people are, I think are over consuming in a lot of ways and they're not thinking as much as they should be about what they're consuming and they're not sort of processing and connecting ideas about what they're consuming and we consume, we consume, we consume, but when do we digest? When do we internalize? When do we chew on the information we're consuming? And part of that happens for me through meditation, right? I, I find it very relaxing and cathartic. Um, and then if I do it before bed, I either fall asleep or like I get this, this awesome moment of, of sort of like quiet and stillness and peace in my day, which is consumed by phones and emails and computer screens and light and cars and all of this stimulus coming at me. And I think that it just allows me to sleep better. I notice I sleep better on days where I do it. I notice like I'm more able to think clearly after I've been in the sauna working out and sort of like got this space away from screens. And I think like I often solve problems when I'm when I'm meditating or when I'm sort of like in the sauna for whatever reason, I don't know, but like I go to the gym just to go to the sauna now. And I know some people <laughs> think that's weird, but it's like, Hey man, this is like a great 20, 25 minutes where I can sort of like get peace and quiet. And for whatever reason for me, I can just sort of like focus on my breath and I come up with these approaches that some of them are like asinine, but some of them, you know, we, we try and then, they seem to work, but it's just a really good space to clear your brain and start debugging a little bit about what's going on in life sometimes. Man, that's awesome. Do you have a challenge for us and our, and our audience, Shane, some homework perhaps? Well, I think I already I sort of like <laughs> prematurely maybe, but I think like one of the things is just asking yourself like where are you consciously different from other people? at work, in life, like where are you living your life in a way that is meaningfully different? Like you're not taking an incremental sort of change from somebody else and driving to work in a different way or something. You're sort of like, what am I doing that is is going to pay off or not that I, I can look like an idiot at? And am I okay with that? And I think the more you're okay with looking like an idiot, um, the easier it gets to sort of like do these things that are different and they're not always going to pay off, but when they pay off, they'll pay off really well. You can be your own VC in a way, right? Yeah. Fund all of these sort of like projects, but they're your projects, your mind and your differences. Man, that's awesome. Shane, this has been phenomenal. I could speak to you for, for hours, man. Uh, maybe oh, when your kids graduate from, <laughs> from college, <laughs> we'll do this again. But man, my last question today before, we sign yeah. off with your your socials and whatnot is let's imagine a scenario in which man you make it to 90 right you get to that age perhaps you've got no regrets i'm not sure you know we, we don't know what, what's going to happen until then but hypothetically you can leave a short but impactful message just before shane Parrish's time is up what would your message be live with the end in mind man that's awesome Shane do you want to talk about where our audience can connect with you and the book yeah I mean you can go to fs.blog to the website uh, join our mailing list we produce timeless content every week we sort of like send out the best timeless content that we've scoured all over the internet to find um, the book can be found on amazon.com or amazon all over the world if you search for the great mental models on twitter it's at farnham street or at shane a parish and facebook we're farnham street instagram we're farnham street i think we're sort of like youtube or if you search for farnham street we'll come up yeah the Knowledge Project would be sort of like the other big thing that we do where we run a podcast. Um, we get the most incredible people we can think of in the world to sort of give us a few hours of their time. We cover everything from 
I don't know, conducting an orchestra to wine tasting to Daniel Kahneman talking about decisions and Jim Collins talking about business and Sue Johnson and Esther Perel talking about relationships and Barbara Colosero talking about parenting. And we just, I mean, the world is this interconnected place and we just follow curiosity. Yeah. And I I would add a side note to that, that don't don't buy an MBA. Listen to the Knowledge Project with Jim Collins. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean I've heard that a lot. Um, thank you for that. I mean Jim is phenomenal. It's so I mean in a lot of ways it's so easy for me to be the host. I just like ask questions and shut up, right? Like it's uh, and listen to these people go into such depth about what they're thinking and what they've learned and how they've reflected on their experiences to come to the conclusions that they've had. Yeah. Yeah. Man, and I have to pay my gratitude to you as well. I'm so sorry about the time, but I just want to quickly add this in, that that for me personally, I've taken a lot from you as an interviewer because I'm not sure how much, much, I'm sure your audience give you massive credit, but, but, you know, the, the way in which you, I don't know, I just feel as if, as if, Man, I don't I just don't think there, there's there's many around that I listen to anyway, which which you know really dig as deep. I mean that interview with Robert Green. I mean I think you shocked him <laughs> how deep you were going. <laughs> we, we we get that a lot. I mean not Robert specifically, but often at some point during the interview, uh, we always edit this out if people say it. But it's like this is way more in depth than I'm accustomed to, or I thought it was going to be. But what? inevitably ends up happening is this huge smile comes on their face right because it's like you did your work you did your research you care about what i'm saying and oh the conversation just becomes so much better in that moment because it's like yeah we do a ton of work before we sit down with you and we care about your answers and we're we're curious that's why we reached out to you and it's not why we don't do a lot of inbound stuff right because we're not necessarily curious about all those people so the interview would sort of come across flat right it would be like oh we can go through the motions on this person or this book that came out but at the end of the day uh, we want to be curious about the subject or i want to be curious about the subject i'm talking about and i don't think you can sort of fake that um, and often people are really taken back from it. I mean, James, a friend of mine, James Clear, just did, you know, 250 interviews, I think, in the past year for his book. Uh, and he, he, one of his comments was like, you know, very few interviewers ask different questions. Very few of them have listened to prior interviews or even read the book. And he's like, it's obvious to me as a guest who those interviewers are. And I think that, like, have respect for your guest, have respect for your audience, yeah. right? Uh, and if you're respecting your guest and you're respecting your audience, you're going to invest time to do work beforehand, like you and reading the great mental models, right? Like you're going to do the work to put yourself in the best position possible to create a really good interview and experience for people. And it might not always work out, but you're putting yourself in the position, right? You're intelligently preparing for a situation. It was such a pleasure connecting, and, awesome. and man, I hope to be in touch in the future when when those others uh, are released. And I will definitely be picking up a copy as soon as Amazon. Awesome! <laughs> thank you so much. Let me know when it comes out so we can uh, we can share it. Sure, man. Shane, thank you so much, sir. It was an absolute pleasure. Awesome! Thank you so much. <laughs>